Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I was very excited for today's podcast because you were still down there in Houston when my favorite team, officially my favorite team since the 2014 Spurs, rolled through town, the Milwaukee Bucks. And look, I'm not totally sold that these guys are what I would consider to be top flight uh, contenders quite yet. I mean, I know their profile looks pretty good and all that. Yeah, Um, I am sold that Giannis should still be viewed as the MVP favorite, as we discussed uh, on this week's earlier podcast. Yep. But I, you got a chance to lurk around Giannis, I hope, because when I saw Giannis in LA, I was like snooping through his conversations, trying to take pictures of him with soccer <laughs> jerseys. You know, it might have gone into like like half a degree too far to stalker mode. Right. And I am hoping you did the same thing down there in Houston. Was I right? Um, no, you you're not right about that. In fact, I was I was like hanging around him uh, pregame. He was out shooting very early before the game like an hour before Harden even got to the arena. And then he was back in the hallways, like outside the Bucks locker room, doing all these stretches. And I caught myself kind of hanging there, sort of leering, and realized that this was like Ben Golliver Instagram stalker behavior. And so I had to sort of switch it up, and uh, I decided not to stalk Giannis throughout his pregame stretching session. But... I was very, very, very excited to have my first in-person Giannis experience of the season. I feel like you've already seen him multiple times somehow. Yeah, I feel like I have too. I mean, it all runs together because it's so amazing. I mean, breakdown, what do you have, like 27 to 20 something? I mean, it was a pretty, and then he also beamed Harden in the face, which I'm sure made you laugh. Uh, But what was it like? (laughs) I mean, seeing him in person, because he's, he's gone to a different level. And to me, I'm not sure there's anyone... I mean, at his peak of entertainment value up close and in person, is he the best in the NBA right now? He's in that conversation. Well, let's start with this question from G in Charlotte to help frame the discussion here. Because he says, Mike Budenholzer seems to have cracked an unholy code for the Bucks, and I'm not sure hashtag playoff basketball can do anything about it. The formula, push the ball, rain threes, be long and Spursian on defense, and dominate the paint for 70 points via a seven-foot hegemonic unicorn. Is anything going to derail an inaugural finals appearance for Giannis? And that's kind of the territory I think we're starting to wade into with the Bucks, where instead of like a fun regular season story, we have to start asking bigger questions. And I mean, like, I mean... I was really excited to watch Giannis. Uh, I don't. I didn't feel like that was a particularly remarkable game for him. And then I looked up midway through the fourth quarter, and he had like twenty-five and twenty. And it's just like, holy shit! How is this guy real? Because if you're asking, my takeaway from Wednesday night, it like I was more impressed with the Bucks defense and you know the biggest star on the court, the most magnetic presence out there was still James Harden because like his his flurry to end the second quarter was out of this world and and typical of what he's been doing for the past couple weeks but then you look up at the end and like Giannis is is just routinely dominating in every aspect of the game except shooting and so I don't know I'm starting to I'm starting to wonder whether we've been kind of looking at the Bucks with like cute story glasses and, and need to start taking them a little bit more seriously. 
Yeah, so you started that by saying we have to ask these real serious questions about that. And I am not convinced. Do I need to ask those serious questions or can I just enjoy them? Because um, they haven't won a playoff series. Yeah. Uh, they've got some players where, you know, like playoff Brooke Lopez. Doesn't that phrase maybe send like a shiver up your back a little bit? Like, well, I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. Yeah. We've seen Fair. kind of fall apart around Giannis in the past. I did like the move for George Hill. I love the proactivity of that, not only for, you know, the salary cap maneuvers in the future, but also like what that means for their playoff rotation. Like that move for them. Um, And I hate to say this about a team that I enjoy watching more than any other team in the league. And I think that represents the best that the NBA has to offer more than just about any team we've seen in recent years. Uh, I'm just not sold that they're ready for the big leagues, quote unquote. You know, like I think they would they would be swept by Golden State in the finals. And that's sort of, you know, like if they could win two games off Golden State, to me, that's sort of the standard for is this team a contender? And I don't have Milwaukee in that class. That's interesting because, I mean, part of that conversation involves the Warriors. And I think that the Warriors are going to win the title, but I do think that we're going to see them kind of wheeze to the finish line. And I think no matter who they play coming out of the East, it's going to be a six-game series that feels weirdly close for like 48 to 72 hours before they win easily at the end. And I'm writing this one down. As a Western Conference elitist, <laughs> I'm taking careful notes on that. I think there's a real chance it's a sweep, Andrew. Well, please do, okay? There are a lot of people very seriously doubting the Warriors, including some Warriors fans. I talked to Sam, and he threw out the 4 Lakers comparison, and I'm like, slow down, okay? The, the Warriors are still going to win the title. I just think that it's going to be slightly more interesting than it has been in past years. Um, but the Bucks side of it. Your concerns are valid. I'm not sure how much, like, I'm not sure what what kind of value Brooke Lopez is going to have against a team that tries to go five out and tries to get him out of the paint. He was really good uh, last night against Harden. Like, the Bledsoe-Brooke Lopez duo containing Harden was really, really impressive. And honestly, even more than watching Giannis in person, watching Bud draw up that scheme against Harden was really, really impressive. And and half of it was Bledsoe kind of freestyling out there, as we found out after the game, where Bledsoe just started overplaying his left even more aggressively than I think Bud intended him to do. And, uh, and it worked. They were funneling him into the lane and basically giving him a clear path to the rim. And it kind of like threw Harden off rhythm just enough to bring him back to earth. And the only time Harden really went off was when George Hill kind of deviated from that plan and tried to like lock him down one-on-one. And Harden was just like, get the fuck out of my face, George Hill, and dominated for like three or four minutes before halftime. But uh, that was it was like a galaxy brain tactic from Bud to do that. This is what I mean, Andrew. This is why I love this team. Could you ever imagine six months ago if I told you that Eric Bledsoe was going to be the mastermind of a revolutionary defensive <laughs> scheme that was going to like frustrate the, the you know, a leading MVP candidate? You never would have believed me, but um, there was very Spurs-esque. I mean, it, we remember what you know San what Antonio it did. Me of? It reminded was, me of Boris Diaw against LeBron in the finals, which granted did not work for an entire series, but it was like, one or two games there where it was so strange and disrespectful that it actually kind of 
took LeBron out of his rhythm. For sure. And it also reminded me of the Spurs a couple years ago in the postseason where they just plopped Pau Gasol in that sort of Brooke Lopez role that you're describing in the paint, hands straight up, you know, making life a little difficult, and then had their uh, perimeter guards aggressively defending Harden, taking away his three-pointers, and then keeping their their hands basically behind their shoulders so they couldn't get called for any reach-in fouls or three-point fouls. Yeah. Um, it was like a more improved version of what the Spurs had done a couple years ago. I liked it. I, you could definitely see Harden thinking, and that's one thing that, uh, you know, I talked to a couple players recently about, like, how do you stop LeBron the score, right? Mm-hmm. And their message was, you got to make him think and you got to you know get him away from just acting and reacting because his reacting skills and his reading skills are the best basically ever in NBA history. So you have to sort of use his brain against him. And that's what they were doing against Harden, just making him think. And it's I saw some people saying, look, the strategy didn't work that well. Harden still had 42. First, Harden get 42 on anybody at any time. Second, it's not about his point total. It's about their team offensive efficiency and chemistry. And like, are they able to get, you know, all of the points that he's able to create? And you could see it was throwing him for a loop. You mentioned the turnovers, but also just their overall offensive efficiency number was where it needed to be for Milwaukee to get a a pretty nice road win. Yeah. Uh, Again, I think there'd be some people in this situation who would take that and be like, look, if they can beat Houston, who almost won the finals last year in Houston, now all of a sudden they're a contender, and I just I still think we just need to pump well, the brakes on any of that. Yeah, and I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to be a prisoner of the moment after one random Wednesday night game in Houston. In part because that Rockets team, I mean Harden has has kind of distorted what they really are just because he's been so good. But like that's still kind of a skeleton crew once you get past Harden, Capella, and and maybe PJ Tucker. I mean there there aren't many like championship caliber guys down there. Yeah, right but that being said, I'd still take Houston to win the East. Um, wait, really? That team, yeah. without Chris Paul, without Eric Gordon, the team that Milwaukee was playing last night, there's not a chance in hell they finish in the top three in the East. <laughs> okay, give me Chris Paul and uh, Eric Gordon. They're okay. going to win the East. I'm just saying that the win in Houston last night was not the type of thing that should be knocking anyone's socks off. But once a month, we are duty-bound to lose our shit over the Bucks, And so I just have to tell you, I mean, like, they're top five in offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. They're number one in, in net rating. And the way I the way I look at it is, like, the, when we were talking about Milwaukee, like, a month or two ago, I was kind of contextualizing them as a modern day version of Bud's old Hawks teams where like they're going to play really hard and be more prepared than almost everyone they play and they're going to play smart and they're going to go win 55 to 60 games and probably won't be that good and we'll have a lower ceiling than you would think with a team that's that's that successful in the regular season and that may still be the most accurate read on what's happening here but I would also say that, like, the role players in Milwaukee are better than the role players Bud had in Atlanta and are, and are better athletes and will translate to a playoff setting better than any of those Hawks guys did. And then Giannis is a whole other level above, like, I guess Al Horford was the best player on that Hawks team. And so, like, Giannis is, is entering LeBron territory in terms of, like, what he is relative to the rest of the East. And I think he could just be a real problem. And 
The only yeah, he's not he's not entering, man. He's there. He's the king of the Eastern Conference. Well, There's no question about it. And I think the biggest difference between the Bucks and the Hawks, uh, you know, comparison that you're making, it's not the role players, uh, because I have a lot of respect for like, you know, I mean, Paul Millsap to me, if he was whatever you're going to call him, the second or third option down in Atlanta, I think he's better than whoever that second or third option is uh, in Milwaukee right now. But Giannis is the difference. And that's why this Milwaukee team, to me, it, it more reminds me of the post Kyrie Cavs almost or like the Kyrie was injured Cavs where you have the supreme playmaker in the entire conference and somewhat capable guys around him including bunches of shooters yeah and even if it's a little bit rickety even if some of those guys fall off in the postseason if you have that singular force who can pull you through they've definitely got a chance to be that team yeah and that's sort of what I mean is I think that we need to start taking them seriously alongside the Raptors. Like, I'm not saying the Bucks should be finals favorites, but they should probably be co-favorites because I, I like Milwaukee's supporting cast more than Toronto's supporting cast. Those are all guys that I, I would trust more in the playoffs than like Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka and Danny Green. Like, I'm sorry. I know they're playing well right now, but like once we get to April and May, I just don't trust those guys very much. Whereas Milwaukee is is built, they what they need is they need a solution at the five because I do think that Brooke Lopez will get played off the floor against a team like Boston and you know Ursan Ilyasova is we knew that was a bad contract coming into the season but he's even more washed up than I thought um, like he can't really move right now and so he's a guy that's not going to be very useful in a playoff setting either so like they need to make a trade but. If they can do that, I, I like their chances against Toronto. It's Boston is the team that I would worry about if I were Milwaukee because I think they'll be pretty good at scheming against Giannis. Um, but it's like those three teams are all on equal footing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I spent a couple of days this week trying to come up with arguments that I could put out there to like convince guys who are going to be bought out that they should go sign with the Bucks for like their title <laughs> chase. <laughs> Look, it's tough, man. It's like really tough to get talent to want to go to Milwaukee. You know what I mean? Like, I guess the best argument would be, look, winter's already over by yeah. the time buyout see it ro- season rolls around. And Giannis is going to set you up and help spike your numbers. So you might as well like give them a shot. Um, I think if I'm Milwaukee, the team that I'm most afraid of, it's not Toronto. They've shown like a lot of confidence. Toronto had a really nice win, by the way, last week over Milwaukee in yeah. Milwaukee. That was a real like Eastern Conference Finals type preview vibe to it. Right. It's not Toronto, though. It's not Philly. To me, the team that Milwaukee should be afraid of is Boston. Yeah. that And that's also, I mean, first of all, that's what I just said, but I completely agree. I think that Kyrie, the mix that Boston has is going to look better in three months. And even right now, I think that they can give teams problems. So, um, so yeah, we'll see where we are, but uh, the Bucks look fucking great right now. And it's, it's pretty fun to watch. Um, I mean, even like Bledsoe, like you said earlier, he is playing the, the best basketball of his career and defensively he's kind of everywhere for them. Um, it's just really impressive across the board. Yeah, I think he had a real awakening after that Boston series. Like nobody wants to be a punchline. Right. And I also think that, when he came into that series, he hadn't been a starter in the playoffs during his career ever. Yeah. Like Phoenix never did it. He was always backing up Chris Paul. 
So the idea of going from like zero to playoff intensity at TD Garden with everybody screaming at you about Drew Bledsoe and all that other like you know, gre- <laughs> yes. green beer nonsense. Like, yeah, I can understand how a guy would get overwhelmed by that moment. And, and I kept telling you, like he had a really good regular season last year. He is having a really good regular season this year. That's another point of, of concern for me, though, is does he press too hard? Once he gets back to the playoffs, right? Yeah. I guess he's one of these guys who's like, I've got to make up for, you know, an entire career that's like been wasted in the postseason, like all in one shot. And, and does he try to do too much? Uh, that, I, I, that's got me a little bit nervous. Um, but look, I mean, the Giannis numbers are completely nuts. I'm sure you've done the historical comps on those where like how many guys have averaged his stat line? Not very many. And they're all Hall of Famers. And I don't see in the entire conference, including Kawhi Leonard, a good individual matchup for Giannis. And that's why we're starting to see some of these teams experimenting with how they guard him. Like, I don't know if you saw the the Utah approach where it's like throw Rudy Gobert on him yeah. and basically back way off, dare him to shoot, and then just have your longest you know rim protector in front of him so that you take away his basket area stuff. I thought that was really smart by Quinn Snyder because if you look at Giannis's shot charts, Basically, he's doing all of his damage from three feet and in. Everything else is pretty rough. Yeah. Uh, so to keep him, uh, you know, not going downhill straight to the hoop, not being able to sneak in and, and wiggle around your perimeter guys and, and kind of get to the basket, I thought that was a, a really smart kind of chess move by Snyder. Um, but again, it's tough to pull off when they're playing five-out basketball all the time, and Giannis has gotten really good at, at passing to those shooters. Um, I guess what I'm saying is the series that I kind of want to see well, I would really hope to see uh, Toronto-Milwaukee because I do think there's some bad blood going there. Yeah, it'd and be great. Ideally, maybe that would be my Eastern Conference Finals. But I would also like to see Giannis have to go through Boston, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, a couple points. First of all, I actually talked to Bledsoe before the game Wednesday, and, and he made both of those points when we were talking about the playoffs last year. He said, I wasn't totally prepared. I hadn't I hadn't really been in that setting before. And then he said it, it like he he did come out of that hungrier after the way that Celtics series went last year. And so both of those are spot on. And then as far as Giannis is concerned, I you know, I have to be honest, what I what I think about the Celtics Bucks series and we, and we think about ways to stop Giannis and like can Kawhi stop Giannis? One of the reasons I like Boston's chances is because it would be so Celtics to like throw some shithead like Aaron Baines on on Giannis and have it work randomly and have Brad Stevens look like a genius. And uh, I just think that there's going to be some kind of junk defense that works against Milwaukee and and paves the way for Boston to go to the finals. And I hate it. I don't want that to happen, but I do think that's how it's going to play out. I can't argue. It's a great take. <laughs> A-plus take. I want to argue, but I can't. Yes. Well, moving on quickly here to the other side of Bucks Rockets, because we need to follow up on the podcast earlier in the week. Eric says, Ben, when you fought this hardened playoff narrative and you went extra hard against it in the last podcast, I looked it up to get educated. But instead, what I see is that the narrative is true. A 37% three-point shooter shot 31%, 28%, and 29% from three in the past three postseasons. He also shot a couple fewer free throws per game in the playoffs, despite playing more minutes 
and he had fewer assists despite playing more minutes. I get that defenses are better in the postseason, but these are big drop-offs. I'm not looking to to judge Harden on his worst day, like that performance against San Antonio in Game 6, but he has more true stinker playoff games than even derided guys like Playoff P. Harden was 2-for-18 against that monster interior defense of Cat and Minnesota. He was 5-for-21 with 6 turnovers in Game 5 of the Western Conference Finals. He was 3-for-17 in Game 2 of that 2017 Spurs series. This list goes on and on. Harden's had some wonderful playoff games, but undeniably, he has had more over-the-top brutal games than your typical top five star. Thank you, Eric. And also, shout out to a few other listeners, including Thaddeus, who wrote in with more Harden playoff stats to support my point. But, Ben, we don't need to dive back into that particular debate because we've already yes, discussed we do. If you're, it no you're if you're only going to give half the debate of course we're going to dive back into it do i get to rebut or no well let me hold on i have a point to make here first of all this is yet another big picture nba topic that i'm right about um but more importantly ben you work at the washington post would you agree that facts matter of course would you agree that democracy dies in darkness course well in that case i would like to revisit the last podcast in which you repeatedly accused me of believing that james harden could never be the best player on a title team do you remember that uh i remember saying that you used to slight harden at every turn you used to tell our listeners that you enjoyed you you went out of your way to not watch his games no 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 listen you sounded crestfallen on the last pod when i denied ever believing that and you said oh this is some real grease pig stuff out of you you sounded genuinely disappointed in me and well, I am, because you've turned around completely on Harden. You spent the entire 2015-16 season trashing him when he was obviously the MVP favorite. You spent the entire 2016-17 season Don't trashing him because... Don't change the subject. No, Don't because you didn't want to... This. You, this is you about... You didn't want to dig out of the Westbrook thing, and now you're going to try to pretend like you like him probably because you have to write a story about him. So go ahead, continue. No, look, my only point is regarding your specific accusations from Tuesday's podcast, okay? And... All right, I would get just to like, it. after we finished recording, and it was like 1.30 in the morning, Houston time, I was feeling kind of tired, a little vulnerable when I was under attack by you. And once we finished recording, I remembered I picked the fucking Rockets to win the NBA title last year in our open floor bracket challenge. Okay? Andrew, you had two brackets. You <laughs> right. picked the Warriors no, no, no. and you picked the Rockets. I picked the Wizards and the Rockets. The Wizards picked okay, did not well, age well. Okay. Okay. And look. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You pick every team to win. Okay, fine. You like every team. <laughs> no. The, the Rockets pick is a take that brings me a tremendous amount of shame, and it was a decision that I immediately regretted about 48 hours into the playoffs. However, it is also incontrovertible proof that I believed Harden could be the best player on a title no. team. I just want to state that for the record. This is yet another case of you misconstruing my takes and betting the truth to fit your agenda. Um, Whatever. I could dig up emails from people who are mad at you, but I'm not even going to bother <laughs> waste my time no, with that. You, you can you have know those floor. emails exist. Take the floor. Okay. I'll give you 60 seconds on playoff hard, and then, then we're moving on. I'll take as long as I want. Okay. <laughs> 
You just listed off the email with all of his bad games. Left unsaid. 45 points against the Warriors. 44 points against Minnesota. 44 points against Oklahoma City. 43 points against San Antonio. 42 points against Dallas. 41 points against Utah. 41 points against Golden State. Is this over like you a five-year span? Harden has one or two 40-point games per postseason. That's all since 2015 when he arrived as the face of the Houston Rockets. So that's number one. Number two, oh yeah, the playoff defenses, maybe those get a little bit tougher. First of all, he doesn't get to go against any of these weak teams in the Eastern Conference. It's all good Western Conference teams. Second of all, he was eliminated by the Warriors, the number one defense in 2015. He was eliminated by the Warriors, you know, elite defense in 2016. In 2017, that Spurs team who you were trying to say, oh, it was so easy. Kawhi was injured that one game. San Antonio won 61 games that year. Right. They were the number one defense in the league. And then he had to go against, uh, uh, you know, like in 2018, the number one defense in the playoffs in Golden State and the number three defense in the playoffs in Utah, right? So this is not like just to say, oh, he's a terrible player. He's worse than playoff P. Look, sorry, (laughs) playoff P, you know, bricking jumpers uh, in the Eastern Conference first round compared to James Harden going against the elite dynasties of Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr in the Western Conference, you're playing by completely different rules. And I will say this, Harden's playoff numbers are not as good as his regular numbers. I have never disputed that. All I'm saying is he is a better postseason performer than the average casual fan uh, gives him credit for because it's so easy to focus on his ugly games rather than giving him credit for his good games. And it's not just about his scoring and his field goal percentage because remember, he is a passing playmaker as well, right? So he gets sure. credit if the defense has to come over there and guard him, just like we give Steph Curry credit. He gets credit for all the attention he draws. If Chris Paul winds up sniping Rudy Gobert in the second round, they just go mid-range shot after mid-range shot over and over again, and they beat him that way. Uh-huh. Harden gets credit for that too because you can't key on Chris Paul. He is a more valuable playoff player than he's ever gotten credit for. And I understand why it's easy to write him off. His game is not aesthetically pleasing like you've said before. He's had his share of good moments too, and they don't get discussed. And I'm not crazy for saying they exist because <laughs> they do exist. And you wanted to talk about facts. I just rattled off like seven 40-point games in the playoffs in the last four years, and you were trying to say it happened in 1975. I appreciate Eric for invoking playoff P to really twist the knife with the trolling of you. Um Yeah, and we can agree to disagree on this one. What's most important here is that on the last podcast, you were lobbing all these accusations at me, and I was sitting there thinking like, man, did I I make that argument? Maybe I did. Like, I don't know what's true. It's late. (laughs) And all I could say is I never said that James Harden couldn't be the best player on a title team. And he's having a phenomenal year. And you know why? In all seriousness... The reason I care about being honest about some of the struggles he's had is because I think that it shortchanges a potential breakthrough for him to pretend that this is all kind of like narrative and media creation and a bunch of BS from casual fans. I mean, there's something real that has happened with Harden, and I think he could absolutely kind of break through and... and answer all these questions and erase all the doubts and it will be that much more impactful if we're honest about what's already happened so you don't remember saying you enjoyed not watching his games last year um 
<laughs> Hearted, yeah. Well, I did say that, and I don't really. Okay, so there we go. Come on, you've been you've been against this guy for years. I've never Andrew, been against Harden. Just because Harden. you filled out three brackets, you want to spin it around? Come on. No, I've never been against Harden. Objectively, listen. I acknowledge that I may have skipped some Rockets games last year because I'm not a huge fan of watching their style, but there's a big difference between saying he's not my favorite player and he's not good. Harden is clearly good, and I don't know if he's ever been better than he is right now. He might be the best player in the league this year. Um, speaking of which, I knew he's been ridiculous for the last three weeks or so, but like he's averaging 34 a game right now. That's kind of insane. He's been great for the last three years, and I've been telling you that for the last three years. <laughs> well, good. I'm happy that you get to take this victory lap, but I was right on the last podcast when I said I never said that. All right, and we will keep it moving. But Ben, first, today's show is brought to you by LinkedIn. With the new year ahead, it's a great time to set goals to make sure it will be a strong one for you and your business. Making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success. But where do you find that person? You can post on a job board and hope the right person will apply. But why leave it up to chance when you can post your job where people go every day to make connections, grow in their career, and discover job opportunities? LinkedIn. Ben, tell me more about LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, think about these little job boards. They're so small and puny and random. I mean, what good? I mean, are you just going fishing and, and praying something's going to come back? No, you go to the stocked pond, Andrew. You go to the place where you know there's going to be all sorts of bites uh, when you throw your line in the water. That's LinkedIn. Go to the salmon farm. That's what LinkedIn is. Exactly right, because most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but nine out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities just like yours. They wanna hear from you, you've gotta put it out there. Uh, With most of the US workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of the right people, the qualified people, the people who are gonna work hard and do what you need to make your company succeed. Andrew, we've got a lot of decision makers, ballers, shot callers out there who are listening to our show. They're going to need some employees. They're going to need some help in their uh, team environments. LinkedIn's where they should go. Yeah, and you can find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash floor, where you will get $50 off your first job posting. That's linkedin.com slash floor to get $50 off your first job post linkedin.com slash floor terms and conditions may apply andrew how cool does it sound to be able to just hand out 50 dollars like it's nothing i bet it sounds pretty cool i feel good about it linkedin.com slash floor go take advantage all right let's get back to it then let's talk jimmy butler for a second because this has been sort of percolating and we never really acknowledged the woge report dan said since Jimmy Butler is probably not the ideal complementary piece to both Embiid and Simmons, considering his lack of floor spacing ability and gravity on offense, should the Sixers consider trading him for the two things they need, shooting and depth, especially considering his recent flare-up with Brett Brown? What do you think, Ben? Yeah, maybe they should trade him for Dario Saric and Robert Covington, <laughs> get, some, get some shooting and depth. No, I mean, I think that... This core does not work. I've seen the arguments trying to say that the core could work. I've also seen their body language, which suggests that the core isn't working or it's not, you know, at least not 
working where it needs to be. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think it's going to come down to Jimmy or Ben getting paid this summer. And if that's what they're looking at, um, they should consider you know trading one of them before that because the earlier you trade guys, the more trade value they have. But I don't see any realistic situation where Elton Brand is going to just admit he was completely wrong, turn around, and undo the biggest move of his tenure like two months later. I just I don't I don't see that happening. Yeah. And I also don't see them trading Ben Simmons during this season under any circumstances either. I think they're riding these three guys uh, for the balance of this year, basically no matter what. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, there's no question that the Elton Brand isn't in a position. It's like. Danny Ainge could maybe turn around and do that and say like, all right, we've seen a month of this. This is not going to work. We're not going to pay this dude. I'm trading him. But Elton Brand, having just taken over, doesn't really have the equity with fans and probably not even with owners to turn around and say, all right, let's hit eject here. But I kind of wish he did. And I wish he would turn around and trade Jimmy Butler because... Really, like, there's been a lot of hand-wringing over Ben Simmons and his fit in Philadelphia, and um, and Zach Lowe wrote a great piece about sort of Sixers trade speculation and whether or not they should break up the core, and you and I have talked a lot about that. But um, the more I've thought about it, like, so much of this is a direct byproduct of adding Jimmy Butler to the mix there, and... and knowing that they're going to have to pay him this summer and that paying him basically gives them a three-year window to go win a title. And, um, and you know, I just don't know why they need to impose that pressure on themselves. And I don't think Jimmy Butler is good enough to give them that great of a shot at the title, even in the best of circumstances. And uh, And, like, I'm all for kind of giving Embiid and Simmons a couple years to sort of see how things shake out and see whether they can make it work. Um, but if you're going to pay Jimmy, then suddenly there's pressure to make it work as soon as possible. And uh, it just seems like a bad idea to me. I would be really impressed if it didn't work this year and they just walked away from Jimmy. Right. But I also find that I find that really hard to believe too, right? No, because I mean, aren't there's you admitting... no way they're going to do that. But it, yeah. it kind of feels like they should. And and that's that's where I'm coming down more and more because it's just like it, everyone knows that this isn't going to end well with Jimmy Butler. It's already not going well. I mean, there was the report of the – video session blow up but i can almost guarantee that there's been more stuff going on behind the scenes with jimmy and it's like why are you doing this to yourselves and i i don't really get it yeah i'm not even so worried about the behind the scenes or the speculation or all of that it's just clear on the court that those three guys don't fit we know what the best team looks like around simmons it doesn't involve uh, like two other lead ball dominant guys we know what the best team around Embiid looks like and it's ditto it doesn't involve two other ball dominant guys yeah and by the way we know what the best team around Jimmy Butler should look like and it definitely doesn't involve two other ball dominant guys right if you're trying to maximize any of those three guys you construct your team in totally different ways and so they've just thrown all of that logic to the wind mashed these guys together and said oh let's hope that it's going to work out and uh that formula would work if one of those guys was like clear cut you know like the lebron james of like 2012 or something like that yeah uh they don't have that player on their roster and so i think to me they're a second round uh exit playoff team where we spend the final two weeks of their season 
hand-wringing about who's going to have to go. And then we spend the next two months just trying to figure out who likes who, who hates who, yeah. uh, and who's who's going to get paid. And, you know, to me, that's somebody else's problem. Like, you know, I don't want to get too excited about Milwaukee. I just don't want to even get too invested in the Sixers talk because where's it going? Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I mean, I agree that none of this is really going to happen. Um, but I think, you know, if, if people are going to – talk about trading Simmons and, and what's going on in Philadelphia. I just think it's worth pointing out that so much of this pressure is directly connected to having to pay Jimmy Butler $200 million this summer. You know, like the the idea that nobody should be thinking about breaking up the Sixers core is perfectly valid if Jimmy has like two years or three years left on his deal. But like, you're going to have to make a big bet in July. And if that's the case, like, I don't know. Like if if Miami went to the Sixers and offered Josh Richardson and like James Johnson, would you do that deal? Yeah, but they're not going to do that. I mean, we just we just saw what the market for Jimmy was, right? I mean, I don't think that the market's gotten better over the last month or two. Do you? Probably not. I mean, so Miami, why though, are they going to give you? Why are they giving you Josh Richardson if the best you could get was you know Covington and Sarich you know two months ago? I don't know. But where is Miami now, really? You know, I, I who knows how Miami makes any decisions. Maybe they'll Look, get just antsy. because existential crises of your opponents is not a bankable trade strategy. <laughs> you can't just be like, "Hey, your life sucks. Give me some of your assets." Well, oh, Josh Richardson on a great contract. Just hand him over to me. That's not how it works. Okay, so if if Jimmy's trade value is is rough right now. Imagine how bad it's going to be when he's suddenly making thirty five million dollars a year. Yeah, it'll be about half as bad as John Walls. <laughs> I don't know. It'll be in much the same territory as John Wall. Maybe maybe the solution, maybe what we're realizing here is whether the Sixers trade Jimmy Butler or not, they just shouldn't pay him this summer. And again, that's like such a dare. I mean, Elton Brand, like imagine that's your first big move, right? You have these high hopes for it. You're feeling the pressure to do something like you mentioned. And it works out well enough. You make the playoffs, but you don't get over the top to then immediately do the about face and just be like, you know, nah, I like, didn't work. This, nah, didn't work. We're just going to let him go somewhere else. And it's not even like it's a bargaining uh, strategy, like go out there and prove you can get like some big offer from somebody else and then we'll match it or whatever. It's just like, no, no, we're good. Uh, I don't see that happening. You know and what's interesting did, though is yeah. I think it's easy to say he would get crushed for that, but... I think that shortchanges how smart fans are, particularly NBA fans, where I think that if he had the balls to say, you know what, Jimmy, sorry, we gave this a try, and I know that when we traded for you, we said that we were going to pay you five years, $190 million, and probably made some weird handshake agreement, but this just isn't for us. It's not the direction that we want to go. I think a lot of people, particularly a bunch of process people would say, Elton Brand, you are our hero. You are the new hinky. We love you. It's a great idea, but I do see one hiccup. First of all, let's not bet against Jimmy Butler being able to like toxic his way out of town again. Yeah. Like It's also possible that this gets so ugly that it just solves itself because, okay, he has to go because he had to go in Chicago and he had to go in Minnesota. So that's one way that he could get out of it. Uh-huh. 
But I think the hang-up with the fan reaction would be is if you have nothing to show for process god Robert Covington and the homie Dario. And so he's gone, and the fans are going to be like, yeah, we didn't pay him, good for us. But then they're also going to start to yearn for the good old days of Covington <laughs> and Sarich, and why why aren't these guys coming to the live podcast? With you know, why aren't they yeah, up on stage like <laughs> hugging Spike and you know dunking Mike or whatever it might be? Like, <laughs> I, I think it would be a short term happiness, don't you? Yeah. Like, honestly, I'm not being sarcastic. Like, well, I do think the yearning of like, why did we do this? This was such a stupid idea. It's Elton's fault. We're glad he didn't make it worse, but this was still a dumb season. I think that that would be the overriding mentality, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's a fickle army of crazy people. I I can't pretend to know how they would read it, but um, I do think that people would be pumped to not pay Jimmy. The Dario thing is interesting because when they traded him, I liked the deal because I'd been assuming for a long time that somebody was going to have to pay too much for Dario on his second deal. And I'm not sure how true that will be. It seems like he's going to be looked at more as a sixth man. And I don't know whether he's going to get like very far North of 10 million a year. And uh, in that case, like that's not a bad deal for Dario. Um, So anyways, that's just an aside. Uh, But that's enough Sixers. Let's move on. David said, so I've been listening to a ton of podcasts and read a a lot of articles, and there has not been any word about Michael Porter Jr. I mean, he was a top high school recruit, and the Denver Nuggets are balling this season. So why is no one talking about him? Is he not coming back this season? What do you think he can bring to Denver long term? Um, This is interesting because I I think David is not listening to enough podcasts and isn't reading enough articles about the Nuggets because every time I hear someone discuss the Nuggets, they kind of bring up Michael Porter Jr. as the ultimate wild card, the intoxicating kind of like high upside um, X factor for them. I And to me, the only reason I included this is kind of crazy because... Basically, nine months of putting Michael Porter Jr. into witness protection has left him looking more alluring, like 10 times more alluring than he did in the lead up to the draft. Do you have any thoughts about any of this? Um, I liked him coming into the draft. I I mean, I didn't love him, but I I liked him. I liked the play that they made on Michael Porter Jr. Uh, I think maybe what David is saying, he's listened to a ton of open floor podcasts and we haven't mentioned it. (laughs) Yeah. Because we've definitely not said the words Michael Porter Jr. since the draft pod. I can promise you that. Um, I don't see him being an impact player this year because what he is good at, you know, scoring, uh, basically, you know, like getting his own shot, right. is not really stuff that they need. And frankly, it's a weird stylistic fit for how they play. Like, I think at best, you use him when Jokic is just not on the court, yeah. you know? And I don't think he's going to be good enough out of the gate as a scorer to be an impact player. So sure. It's a cute story. If you're trying to sell me on like the long-term viability as the, of the nuggets as a contender, you know, two years, three years, four years, like, are they entering a window? Right. Right. Like that conversation, Michael Porter gets to be a part of it. But the idea that like, he's this X factor, who's going to like, you know, come in and just like snipe the warriors out of the playoffs or like tilt the scales against the Rockets. Like, no. Well, and it's just weird how many credible people I've heard discuss him as if he's a real factor for this season. I do think 
it was a really smart long-term gamble for them and a great way for them to use their lottery pick in the probably the final year they're going to be picking in the lottery for a while. It's like swing for the fences, see what you can get. Otherwise, you're getting like a rotation player at best a fifth starter. So I'm I support the pick, but like coming into the draft, he was I I, I believe I called him the vegan Jeff Green. I mean, he's not a very good passer. He takes a lot of mid-range shots. Like there were some red flags even before all the injury stuff. So it's best to just proceed with caution and appreciate everyone else in Denver because literally almost everyone else in the rotation is really good and playing really well right now. So I think yeah, you must be reading some parts of the basketball dark web because I haven't been seeing all this like supposed uh, Michael Porter Jr. hype, but sure, more power to the people. I, I don't root against him because he's coming back from such a serious injury. I would love for him to prove me wrong because that means... He want he wound up being the elite guy who people thought he would be a yeah. couple years ago. Well, it would also um, be huge for the Nuggets. It'd be really cool for them to add one more elite guy, particularly after trading Donovan Mitchell for Trey Lyles two years ago. <laughs> you had to sneak that in. Well, <laughs> is that is that such a bad trade right now? Dude. I'm not I'm not like a full Nuggets fan, but if I was a Nuggets fan, I'd be ba- pounding that one pretty hard. I don't know. Donovan Mitchell's looked pretty good for the last week or so. It's been a, been an up and down year in Utah. Um, but lots of downs. I'm just kidding, but um, obviously you would do that. You'd redo it if you could, but um yeah, and no, I I think the the Porter Jr. hype that's I feel like you just made that up. Did you just straw man that? <laughs> no. I mean, is that really a thing? I swear to God, I've heard him discussed at least five times in the last like month or so, whether it's people tweeting about it or talking about him on podcasts, as if he's a real factor that's going to matter this season. And I just, it doesn't really make sense to me. But hey, one one real quick thing, because uh, you mentioned like they're not going to be in the lottery for a while. And speaking of the lottery, just real quick. Uh, don't check the standings. Like, don't look now. But LeBron's out for another week. Basically, his third straight week. Uh-huh. The Lakers are in the West's eighth seed, which is pretty predictable. When you lose a star in the West, you know you fall back to that bubble, basically like clockwork. Yeah. Um, Utah is right behind them by two games, and I just, you know, you know how I bang the drum on the uh, on the one to sixteen playoff format bracket. Uh huh. But I just want you to like follow me on a very realistic nightmare scenario. Yeah. You could have the Lakers with LeBron James win 45 games this year as the number nine seed <laughs> and miss the playoffs, right? In the Eastern Conference, you could have the Charlotte Hornets or the Detroit Pistons or the Orlando Magic as like a 38-win team uh-huh. and make the playoffs. Honestly, how much money do you think that alone would cost the NBA in terms of ticket sales, in terms of TV revenue, in terms of all of it. If LeBron and the Lakers are at home and we have one of these like sub 500 also rands in the playoff bracket. Now I'm not predicting this is going to happen to be clear. I think that LeBron's going to come back in time, get them into the top eight, right? Yeah. But this is not a conversation we would have had three weeks ago because LA was cruising, but it's a conversation we have to have right now because they're sitting on the bubble. Uh, To me, I understand the excitement around the East sort of like top tier, you know, those top four or five teams that have been playing really well. Yeah. Uh, But the rest of the conference is really rough and it could come back to bite the NBA really hard this year. Yeah. Well, it's funny, man, because I I believe it was Sam Esfandiari, uh, our friend who somehow is mentioned on every open floor, um, like last midway through last year, I think he predicted that 
LeBron going to the Lakers could lead to it could finally be the move that leads to reseeding the playoffs. And um, you know, if the Lakers miss the playoffs, and I, I Sam isn't the only person who predicted that. I think Tom Zilla wrote that at one point too. But if the Lakers were to miss the playoffs, it would lead to some serious discussions in the league office about like figuring this out. And and part of that would also be for the sake of potentially getting like a LeBron versus Golden State finals um, and not missing out on that potential also. But uh, it's a real thing that's a possibility because you look at the West right now, and by the way, I mean, LeBron's injury hasn't helped the Lakers, but they have been up and down all year. Basically, the way their season has gone has been to play really poorly for three weeks and to play really well for three weeks. And it's just been kind of a roller coaster. And um, the situation now, it, it really looks like it's going to be San Antonio, Utah, and, and the Lakers kind of jostling for those final two spots. And I would say... I bet on LeBron, I guess, all things being equal. Where do you come down? Um, I'm not sure those are the only teams that are going to be in the mix. You know, I could see the Clippers falling back a little bit. I think Portland's one injury away from, uh, you know, being a team Yeah, let's let's add the Clippers to that mix, too. The Clippers are probably out. Yeah, to me, the way the San Antonio is playing, I almost feel like they've played themselves out of it if they can stay healthy. Um, But... Uh, I think it's a nightmare scenario, not just because of LeBron, because this West-East imbalance, especially towards the bottom of the uh, playoff bracket, gets talked about every once in a while. I did some digging on it, though. So in the last 20 years, there's been 13 times the West lottery team was better than the East's weakest playoff team. Mm -hmm. And it's only been in reverse. Like, the East team has only been snubbed twice. So it's like very clearly shifted, you know, towards the Western Conference. And you're not just kind of screwing over the Lakers here. I mean, if you have got teams like the Pelicans with Anthony Davis, like, you know, a top five, top six player, you've got a team like Dallas that has a lot of momentum um, with Luka as this, you know, transformational guy who's right among the league leaders and all-star vote getters. You've got Sacramento who would love to be able to claim, you know, an eighth seed in the playoff race and just call it a dream season, right? Sure. All, all those teams are really going to struggle to even get into the mix in the West, whereas in the Eastern Conference, they would be fighting for their lives, making the types of moves necessary to just sort of ensure that you get into the playoff mix. And I think that's damaging for the league. I really do. I mean, it really frustrates me that we have you know, NBA superstars who work out 12 months a year to become like the very best ver- ver- versions of themselves. Uh-huh. We've got these guys who are teaming up, like they're concocting these crazy team-up scenarios, tampering it with each other and all the rest of it to put themselves in the best position to win a title. And then we've got the NBA itself just <laughs> sitting back and being like, you know what? Like, we're totally fine if the Charlotte Hornets are the eighth seed and LeBron's sitting home. It drives me nuts, Andrew. Like, the NBA is not holding itself to the same standard that the superstars are holding themselves to. And if I was one of the players, man, it would drive me crazy. Yeah. I I don't know if you heard me laughing in the background. It was because I pulled up the Eastern Conference standings. And um, six through eight is pretty dark. The Nets at 21 and 22 are currently in sixth in in the Eastern Conference. And if they make the playoffs, there will be a lot of Nets triumphalism and and. Sean uh, Marks believers are going to be flying the flag proudly and like executive of the year. More power to them. More power to them. The Nets are consistently fun to watch. They have my favorite broadcast team in the league. Uh, But I mean, come on like that's 
The Nets is an eighth seed. Yeah. I could maybe get behind. Nets in sixth place, and and I guess they'll be battling the Pacers. That's that's a brutal series to think about. Um, and then the Hornets, Look, the Heat, the Pistons, the Wizards are not out of the playoff race, and that's a disgrace in and of itself. It's it's dark. I don't care if Socrates and Aristotle are calling the Nets games. I'd rather watch LeBron. <laughs> well, all right. That's not exactly a hot take from you, but um, sure. No, I, I'm just saying we don't give bonus points because you have a great broadcasting duo. We want to see the best players on the court on the biggest stage. And it would be pretty wild if this was what, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, you know, Adam Silver last year, it's like, well, it's travel, not tradition that's holding us back. Uh, it would be hilarious if he came back, you know, this summer at the board of governors <laughs> meetings with like a totally different talking point. Yeah. Like it's time to enter the new age. Yeah, you know? LeBron missed the playoffs and America had to watch Pacers Hornets for two weeks. So it's time time for change. Um, let me ask you though, for real, uh, we're in mid-January here. The Clippers, the Lakers, the Spurs, the Jazz. Do we think the Clippers are the team to fall out of those four? I didn't... I. Did not realize, um, it, basically only one of those four are going to miss the playoffs. So it's not quite as competitive as I thought if we're discounting Sacramento and Minnesota and the Pelicans. Although the Pelicans are only three games behind the Lakers, so they're not completely out of it either. Yeah, that's the thing is, I mean, there's been some separation right around that like eight, nine seed range, but not that much. And if a couple of these teams go on a run, it could get really interesting to me. I think the eight playoff teams in the West will be the Denver Nuggets, Golden State Warriors, Oklahoma City Thunder, Portland Trailblazers, Houston Rockets, San Antonio Spurs, Los Angeles Lakers, Utah Jazz, and not the LA Clippers. Okay. Um, the Lakers, I mean, there's a lot riding on this hamstring recovery from LeBron because at starting January 17th, and I believe that the Lakers said he would be, there would be another update on January 16th, right? Correct. Yeah, I got that. I got that news from Ben Golliver at Ben Golliver. You always first with the press releases. Um, January seventeenth, the Lakers are at the Thunder. January nineteenth, they are at the Rockets. January twenty-first, they host the Warriors. January twenty-fourth, they host the Wolves. Those are four pretty tough games. I mean, I don't know if we include the Wolves in that category, but like those first three games, they are screwed if they don't have LeBron on the court. Yeah, and you have to include the Wolves because uh, Andrew Wiggins decided he's a basketball <laughs> player again. Yo, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. You have to include it because they're in the mix too. Like they're, I mean, I think that they're for sure out of the playoffs, but their season is not over yet. They're still playing for stuff, so you you can't write that in as a W by any stretch. How about that Wiggins game as a message to Tibbs? Because I mean, I was I was all time of the mind that Tibbs had Cat playing really well and that disrupting everything halfway through the season was probably not the smartest idea in the world. Um, and that could still be true, but Holy shit. Wiggins just coming out of nowhere, playing the game of his life. That was incredible. It makes me respect him less, to be honest. Well, <laughs> I mean, you gotta bring, you gotta bring it every night, regardless of who your coach is, regardless of your role. You know, they cleared Jimmy out. That's when he should have stepped up and taken over. Um, I thought it was funny, uh, but it only a good point. drove home. It drove home the point that this is not an every game player that you can count on. Well, yeah, and it's also, I mean, he could be great if he wanted to be an every game player, um, but which ultimately makes him like ten times more frustrating. So 
let's we we did put out the call for Zion stuff, Zion um, Ooh, destinations, yeah, and I because you insisted on having a lantern segment in this podcast. I am not going to read 10 Zion emails and then do 10 (laughs) Lantern submissions also. So here's my favorite is Will. He says, what about the Hawks for Zion Williamson? Trey Young, Kevin Herter, Torian Prince, Zion Williamson, John Collins. That sounds like a pretty fun team for the next 10 years. The Collins-Zion fit is potentially problematic, but Collins has shown glimpses of being able to stretch out to three-point range. Having Zion as the centerpiece of that team would probably curb some of Trey's worst habits as well, giving him a secondary ball handler and and shifting the offensive load away from him. Um, I love it, and and the Hawks are my favorite Zion fit of anyone on the board. Oh. I think the the reason the Colin Zion fit is potentially problematic is probably more um, defensive than offensive. I think they would be great offensively, but. And, and I mean that team, like they would score like 130 points a game. Kevin Herter has also shown some flashes this year. Every time I've seen him play, he reminds me of uh, the Jewish Jordan. Do you remember him? <laughs> Vaguely reminded. <me. laughs> Tamir Goodman. He was profiled oh, yeah. by Sports Illustrated when he uh, was in college. I forget where he went to school, but he he. That's who Kevin Herter reminds me of. But he's been awesome for the Hawks, um, or at, at least better than I think you might have expected, given where he was drafted. Um, Atlanta's been really solid, and if I were a Hawks fan, I would feel pretty good about the way this season has gone. Trey Young has kind of had a, a nice month here after some really sketchy shooting um in like october or in november and december yeah you're starting to convince me a little bit i think my main hang up with them was you know tussling for the ball between him and trey i think trey is going to wind up being a really really high usage guy and basically you know a one-man offense uh-huh. um, as he gets into his prime and i don't ever want zion to be in like a clear number two role if that makes sense like, I think, okay, maybe you can strike a perfect balance between your two lead playmakers where he has the ball a lot and somebody else also has the ball a lot. Yeah. You know, maybe like a John Wall, Bradley Beal type of way. Um, but if it's Trey's team and Zion's along for the ride, like, he's too big for the sidecar, you know? Like, <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure. Like, if Trey's riding the motorcycle I'm and Zion's it now, in the sidecar. And Zion is yeah. way, way too big for the sidecar. Yeah, isn't the whole thing just falling over in that scenario? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I would be, I'd be a little worried there. I guess it comes down to who do you think has the higher ceiling, Zion or sort of that lead guy he's going to be mixing with? Uh-huh. And I, I feel like Atlanta is betting that Trey is going to have the highest ceiling of any player on its roster in like the next five years. Yeah. And um, it feels like Team Zion is banking on him having the highest ceiling of like any player in the NBA for you know the, the duration of his prime. Okay, well, I want to come back to that. But the one, one point on Trey and one counter is I, I think Will actually makes a really good point here where a secondary ball handler who shifts the offensive load away from Trey Young could be a really healthy thing. And um, Trey Young-Steph Curry comparisons are awful, and everyone has made that point for the last 12 months. The one thing I think Trey Young could really benefit from is emulating Steph's movement off ball and giving the ball up and going and spotting up and moving constantly on offense. I think that's healthier 
than dribbling for 15 seconds on every possession and and basically being Steve Nash uh, 15 years later. I don't think that's as smart a role for him. And I think that part of what's changed in Atlanta is he is moving a little bit more off ball. And I think as, as he embraces that, uh, I think he's going to be even more dangerous. He's he's a better catch and shoot shooter than he is off the dribble. So that's number one. Um, the larger point and the question I have for you is like, where do you really put Zion Williamson? I know you're not really like a draft guy per se, but um, I, if, to me, a lot of people are talking about this guy like he's in the LeBron Anthony Davis category of prospects. And I'm not quite there. What do you think? Uh, well, the first thing about moving Trey off the ball, my concern would be if you did that, Zion's playmaking for others isn't at a high enough level to utilize that, right? Mm-hmm. So it winds up like you've got Trey just like, he's like the asteroid circling, right? And then Zion's just <laughs> I don't know. got his head down and trying to go to the basket. Zion's, play, Zion's playmaking is actually pretty decent. I, I have to say, I've been pleasantly surprised by the way he moves the ball for Duke. Um, his shooting isn't quite as good as I, I think it may have looked for the first couple weeks. I think everyone's basing this off like the first two weeks of Duke games that they saw. He, he, he has not been quite the same shooter he he was in that like Kentucky I view him game. as a... Yeah, I view him as a non-shooter. Yeah, like at I least for healthiest. the next three, three, four, five years. And I think that, you know, he, okay. So even if we're gonna give him like average level playmaking, like I don't think he's like a point forward yet no. on the LeBron, Ben Simmons, Giannis, where he is right now level. And I don't see that happening like in the in the immediate future. Um, so that's why I think you just need to have as much structural help for him as possible. I mean, ultimately, I see him as the lead playmaker of an offense, the ball's in his hand more often than not. I want him to play in an up and down tempo. So you're getting full use of his athleticism and his energy on defense. I see him starting at four and playing some backup five uh, when teams go smaller. Uh-huh. Uh, and I I basically want whatever team that drafts him to build the whole show around him, you know, like ver- ver- in very like Giannis-like ways, because I can see if the pieces don't fit, in the same way that Simmons has kind of been marginalized or like put into some boxes that don't really, you know, serve his best needs. I could see Zion struggling. Like if he's constantly driving into paint, I'm not sure that's going to be a a worthwhile thing for him. If he's in a a five out offense or like four other shooters are around him and he's allowed to go one-on-one, I think he's going to be a really tough cover for basically everybody in the NBA within about two years. Um, I love his energy. I love his uh, his activity level, his buy-in, his willingness to do the little things, his physicality. I mean, there's a lot to like here, and that's why I used the word phenomenon on last week's episode. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm so hung up on this idea of you got to have a stretch five with him uh, to keep it wide open. Uh, and you've got to understand that there could be some growing pains with him running the offense, but that if you want to reach his full potential, the ball has got to be in his hands. Yeah, yeah. Um... I have a couple thoughts there. Number one, I I agree with you. One of the things I love most about Zion is he does play super, super hard. And, you know, given how famous he is and how talented Duke is and how badly they beat teams, like, it would be understandable if he didn't play that hard. I mean, Ben Simmons did not play that hard at LSU. 
and it was uh, understandable. And so it's he, he still doesn't play that hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really no offense. I like him a lot, but he doesn't. Yeah, you know? it's really cool to watch Zion just throw his body all over the floor and go 150 miles an hour at all times um, because that makes him even more fun to watch. And the other thing I would add, one of the things I love thinking about, and it actually comes back to Ben Simmons and the difference between Ben Simmons and Giannis is that Giannis has such freakish length that the jumper, the lack of a jumper matters less because he's able to get his shot over anyone. And, uh, and he's, he's always got a clear look at the rim. And that's something that, you know, a scout was describing to me early on when I was, I, I wrote something comparing Ben Simmons to Giannis. And he said, you know, there are definitely similarities, but like the big difference is that Ben Simmons is not going to have the length and it's, and it's not going to be nearly as easy for him as it is for Giannis. And, uh, and I think Zion fits somewhere on that continuum and I think is probably closer to Giannis, except instead of length, it's just like ridiculous power paired with a 50-inch vertical that allows him to get his shot over anybody and at least at least that's what it's been in college and then he's also got like amazing touch around the rim and uh I so I don't know how much of that is going to translate but that's part of what's so exciting about him is like it's possible that some of his limitations won't matter as much just because he's like the best athlete we've seen in 20 years yeah I think that my most of my concerns about Zion I don't want to compare him to like Blake Griffin, but I would worry that in certain contexts, like the same kinds of things that held Blake Griffin back yeah. uh, might, or like made his life more difficult might also apply to Zion, right? Yeah. Like the lack of outside shooting, the idea of like, I'm just going to try to bull rush my th- way through here over and over. And that works for a couple of years, but you reach your mid twenties and you can't really use that as a viable strategy anymore. Um, so that would be like the downside of where this could go. And Blake um, but, Griffin like, we never was still s- really good for the first eight or nine years. And and it's actually still really good. It's just the contract has sort of like changed the way we talk about him. But yeah, I think that those concerns are valid. I'm, I'm glad you share those because like that's part of what I feel like has been missing from the Zion conversation is like people are like, he's a once in a generation player. And like, I think that's true in terms of like we've never seen anyone like Zion Williamson. I just don't know if he's as much of a sure thing as people make it seem sometimes. I hear you, but I also think that the the desire to nitpick, which is absolutely a great desire and everyone should do it. Um, don't, don't go overboard here. This guy has got a 45 PER right now. Yeah. Like that's not a misprint. Like just, we can also just in, enjoy Zion and dream about him because it could be, uh, a, a truly unique thing that we've never seen. Yeah, well, I can't wait to watch him wherever he lands. Um, all right, where are we at on time? Okay, uh, 65 minutes in. You can do your little lantern spiel. Let's finish up with that. Okay, so first of all, a couple things. I don't think it's a coincidence that I launch a new segment that really is all <laughs> about connecting people online and uh, you know having... Uh, this amazing interaction on the same, you know, basic timeline that we get LinkedIn as a sponsor. Because what's LinkedIn all about, Andrew? Connecting it's people true. online, right? true. You know, expand your network. So I'm going to take full credit here. And this is going to be the, <laughs> listen to this, Andrew. This is the lantern brought to you by LinkedIn. Okay? Oh boy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> At least... At least for this episode. Who knows if they're ever going to be back, yeah, all right? I think we might be in breach here, but 
Go ahead. And you've been whining to me so much. Oh, the lantern, the lantern. It's going to take so long, blah, blah, blah. So I have great news for you, Andrew. Um, one of our listeners, her name is Meryl. She came up with a brilliant tagline for the lantern segment. Are you ready for yeah, it? Yeah, hit me. One if by land, two if by sea, three if by gram. It's brilliant. <laughs> three if by gram. God. So... For now, the lantern is going to become Instagram only. All the questions are going to go up at uh, ben.goliver on Instagram, and then they're <laughs> going to go on my story. All replies have to come through Instagram, okay? And Andrew, in the spirit of three of by Graham, even though I got probably 30 amazing stories for this week's lantern, I'm only going to pick the best three, and that will save you some time, okay? Oh, wow. I really appreciate this small tweak here. I this I. Suddenly, I think I can see the lantern segment lasting past the end of the month. I, I, I think that was my deadline. <laughs> and I actually, I thought about it on the plane today because you texted me saying the lantern questions are lit. And I said, I, in my head to myself, I said, all right, so I'm going to get to Charlotte for All-Star Weekend and I'm going to have to have a heart to heart with Ben <laughs> about this Instagram segment. But if we're only doing three per episode, we can deal with it. Well, first of all, the people love it. So for whatever reason, you know, there's been a common theme on our show. I'm the innovator. You're the player hater. And I'm constantly <laughs> oh, I'm constantly moving us forward. You're constantly trying to hold me back. Yeah. So um, anyway, this week's prompt had to deal with Blake Griffin. And it was this. Blake Griffin has had zero contact with the Clippers brass since the trade last year. And I'm sure you read that. There were some great stories. Kevin Arnovitz wrote one. Uh, my buddy Jovan Butha wrote one for The Athletic. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really not over it. Uh, he says he's over it, but he's holding the grudge, right? Sure. So the lantern question was, what's the longest, funniest, most horrifying grudge you've held with absolutely no regrets, right? Okay. Now, now, Andrew, I was not prepared for the heat that came in. We had a high-profile media member accuse another high-profile media member of repeated instances of plagiarism. <laughs> So th- this is what I'm saying. The lantern, it's already hitting hard. This okay? is why. By- this is why you texted all caps lit. <laughs> yes, the three of by Graham is coming through in a big time way. I'm gonna just leave that as a tease and sort of a challenge. Like if you guys are replying to future lantern questions, try to get on that level. Okay, here's the number one lantern uh, that we got today. This is from KJ Cooper. And your job this week, Andrew, you're going to be the advisor. Should this person uh, get over this grudge or should they maintain the grudge? Okay. okay, you've got to determine that. Here it comes. KJ writes, in the third grade, my former friend Nicholas wrote that Dr. Johnson, who was our principal, is a B word on the desk. Ooh. We don't have assigned seats, so she couldn't tell that it was him. My teacher found out, then told the class to talk to her at lunch to see if they knew who the culprit was. The person who did it got eight other kids to go with him at lunch and frame me. Whoa! I was, sus- <laughs> I was suspended and got my mouth washed with soap by my mother. <laughs> I ha- I haven't spoken to Nicholas since. I have no regrets. What do you think, Andrew? Should there be a forgiveness here, or is this just life? You're cut out of my life. Oh, man, that's really interesting. Um, do you think parents still do that with the soap? Oh, definitely, for sure. I definitely had that done to me. (laughs) Well, do tell. Well, it actually it didn't work. If we're judging by this podcast and my language, Um, 
The answer to KJ is I think that's a grudge you you continue for life because that is shadier than I could have imagined. Like when that story started, I thought maybe it was one person framing him, but building a coalition and going to the teacher to frame him <laughs> is really, really messed up. Yeah, some some kid watched Survivor at home and was like taking notes about like how he was gonna you know introduce those strategies into his uh, classroom, and that's not a good for thing. for real. That's right. that's he, like dark. I, I wonder what happened to that kid. Uh, well, he's scarred for life, and he's texting me, so it's <laughs> great. Uh, number two, Andrew comes from Tyler, and this one's more like kind of philosophical and more profound. He writes, but it's also in a way kind of dark. He writes, I dropped out of a wedding as a groomsman. Because the groom lied about his dog being a service animal. We haven't spoken in more than a year. People really don't respect service animals because of people like him. And I had to stand by my convictions. So, Andrew, we got a picture of this here. You're close enough friends with someone that you're going to be in their wedding. So you're like a top three or four friend in their life. Uh They want you there to commemorate your biggest day. But you're lying that your dog is a seeing eye dog or whatever, so you can bring him on a plane for free. And your friend decides our lifelong friendship is over. I'm out. Screw this guy. I'm not going to be in the wedding. And on top of that, I don't care about his wedding. I don't even want to be friends with him. Um, do you support this drastic action that he's taken, or should he try to make amends? Um, no, I'm confused exactly who's emailing here. My take is. The guy whose wedding it was and who had the service animal. I mean, like, I I know some people who have done that. There's like a kind of BS test you have to take and you can basically like pay $75 or whatever to, to get your dog <laughs> certified. I personally would never do that, but I don't judge others who have because dogs are awesome. And if you could have them close to you, like more power to you or whatever. If you feel like you need them close to you, no judgment from me. The, the groom is well within his rights to hold a grudge. The person, oh. I, th- I feel like the listener who's emailing in here is saying that, you know, I find it so offensive that he has forged this service animal test that I need to cut this person out of my life. Like, that sanctimony is total bullshit. And, like, I, I mean, first of all, the grudge is not appropriate and your friend should be the one who's holding the grudge and cutting you out of his life. This is absolutely perfect, Andrew, because I feel exactly the opposite. This is why we do oh, the lantern because, on. first of all, I mean, you don't think there's some ethics involved in saying your dog is a service animal? What about the people who actually have so service animals? So here's the thing. I think that there may have been ethics involved at one point, but at this point, the tests have become such a sham and that, that designation for dogs of America is such a joke that I don't blame anyone for kind of abusing the system. We need wholesale changes to the service dog system. Yeah. I mean, I guess if traveling with pets was easier, people wouldn't uh, take these shortcuts. But I understand why the guy was frustrated. I support his grudge. I say continue. Look, I mean, clearly they're on very different sides of this. I'm not sure it's ever going to be reconciled. You know what I mean? Okay. It might be better if they just go each other separate ways. No. That, look, right. hold on. <laughs> this guy should apologize to his friend at the very least. That's a bare minimum and leaving the dude's wedding, I don't know. I mean, I don't personally think weddings are like that uh, sacred, but st- I don't blame anyone who would think that that's like 
a friendship ender, but uh, this guy should try to mend the fences. He was he was in the wrong. Okay, before I get to the last one, which is the best one, I need to give an honorable mention to our guy, Dame. And he's a Lakers fan. I'm sure you know him from Twitter, Andrew. He said that he was so mad at me for saying the Lakers should lose their uh, their lottery pick that year that they were tanking, the pick that became Brandon Ingram, uh-huh. that he heard me say that on a podcast and he unfollowed me and blocked me and like <laughs> muted me. That's awesome. <laughs> on, every, on every social media platform. And then somehow... Uh, I think probably through you and Open Floor, we were able to win him back. Wow! So that was an example of a grudge that you know. Now we have a nice, long, strong bond together. He's been great. Okay. So th- that was a, that was a funny one. Here comes the best lantern entry from Crin. He writes, "I forwarded a vine to my friend. The vine starts with these kids about to fight, and the volume is purposefully really low for a few seconds, so you can't really hear what's going on, and you're more likely to turn the sound up." Then, without warning, the vine cuts to a lady who is moaning so loudly. And you can assume what kind of moaning, right? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Crin then continues. I opened the vine. My other friends opened it. And, you know, everybody got pranked. We all thought it was hilarious. So one of my friends works in an office. Uh, I forwarded it to him. A woman that sits in the next cube over... Heard him play the vine and immediately goes to HR. The woman claimed that my friend was watching porn at work and all of a sudden he's freaking out. We are getting real-time updates on his job status in our group chat. Uh-huh. He then he then gets upset. I apologize profusely. We talk and at the end of the talk, my friend says that the friendship has run its course and he essentially breaks up with me. We haven't spoken since. This all occurred in 2014. So wait, were they dating? So, no, no. This is just a random friend. I mean, he broke up as friends. He's like, look, we just can't be any fr- friends anymore. You almost cost me your job over you know, a Vine gag, which was obviously not intended to cause the guy to lose his yeah, job. Yeah, right? and so, can I just say here? Well, actually, go go forward with your question. No, I was just gonna say, should his should he appeal to his friend, uh, basically to make amends and say, hey, I know a lot of time has passed. Hopefully, we can just move past that. We were obviously friends for some reason in the past. Let's let's try to get back to that. Or should he let this guy go? Let this guy go, because the the guy seems super lame to the point where I don't really believe that his job was ever seriously in jeopardy. I think if you're in that situation, <laughs> seriously, if you're in that situation, you go to the HR people and show them the vine and say, look, I wasn't watching porn. This is just a really stupid joke from one of my friends. I'm sorry. It will never happen again. And that's kind of the end of the inquiry. I don't really understand where it can go from there. It sounds like this guy was being really melodramatic with his friend, probably thinks his job is more important than it actually is. And I feel like the <laughs> listener is coming out ahead by losing this guy's friendship. It's addition by subtraction, sort of like uh, parting ways with Carmelo Anthony. Exactly, exactly. A more sensitive, melodramatic version of Carmelo Anthony. Um, I have to ask you, though. Well, I- Yes. Do you have any grudges? I'm sure you have actually have dozens of grudges. I hold a lot of grudges, but I was trying to answer my own uh, question with this one, and one didn't really pop to mind. Do you have one? Um, I don't. And I was thinking about it before since I knew that this was going to be a topic. And I really, I, like, I think there are probably other people who hold grudges against me. There are definitely 
lots of people on Twitter who have unfollowed me and blocked me in this, in much the same way Demond did uh, to you because of the Lakers take. But like, I don't know. I I think that like in general, holding a grudge for any prolonged period of time takes too much energy and uh, costs more than it's worth. I hate to tell you, Andrew, but you doth protest too much. We've turned the lantern into amazing life advice with Dr. Sharp. You're up there with <laughs> Ann Landers, Dr. Phil, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Mock. You don't Mock need that You're negative right with energy in your life. You know what? That's that's the message from Open Floor this week. Well, it's all thanks to the lantern. Three if by Graham, as they say. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, I'm sick to my stomach. Uh, but, Ben, I will talk to you next week monday or tuesday and uh yeah man this was good that three three lantern questions is doable we can live with that good times andrew hey everybody can check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for our page search you know two words open floor when you get there scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy and write us a nice review we love to hear it i know all you guys out there love the lantern so put it in the little review so andrew can know everybody wants the lantern to stay (laughs) Also, please email us questions, comments, concerns, angry statistics to, you know, back up your arguments. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. And Andrew, we're on the world famous radio.com slash openfloor. Everybody check us out there. Until next week, I will talk to you. All right, man.